Hello everyone. Do you like beasts? Do you like a good fright and things that go boom in the dark? The mother of all monsters has enlarged her brood with things unnatural, all with a taste for flesh. All of this and more you'll find here in Echidna's house. Nine Days by Daryl McDonald Death Row is intended to be an unpleasant place by design. The normally lugubrious mood was absent here tonight, with the next inmate to be executed at 5.59 a.m. He sat, laughing, eating his fried pork chops, macaroni and cheese with collard greens, loaded with fatback, as good as his Aunt Dinah used to make. Melvin Dudley was on his third plate, as no one else had had the stomach for food. Even his buddy from the gym, Bo, who was a Rastafarian and vegetarian. Why wasn't Mel anxious, or at least unsteady with his coming demise? He never spoke of it, but focused on their incredible strength training exercises, leaving his buddy with tips on techniques. Both were violent men with Melvin being the nastier, having absorbed horrible abuse as a child in rural North Carolina, along with the regular run-ins with local law enforcement. Cops hated trying to arrest this steroid fiend who needed leg irons for his hands instead of handcuffs. His death sentence stemmed from a violent altercation between him and another man who caught him cheating with his wife at a motel. Melvin killed the man and his teenage sons with his bare hands and critically injured two police officers. Because of his lack of remorse and ribald outbursts in court, the judge used his extensive record in handing down the fatal sentence. However, it was another mysterious figure that visited Melvin in his cell and offered him a chance at revenge. If he accepted his offer, Melvin would be given nine full days of superhuman strength to do whatever he pleased, powered like his childhood hero, Hercules. The plate was mopped clean with cornbread, the huge pans empty. Melvin was prepared to die. For the last seven hours, he wanted to be alone in his cell. No preacher, no Bible, no buddy. At 4.35, guards moved him to an anteroom outside the chamber while everything was prepared. Two police representatives, one female journalist on her first execution assignment, and other interested parties sat silently watching the chemicals flow. Melvin's face, lacking any real concern, looked as if he was just in the prison barber chair for a cut. His eyes closed his chest heaved one last time, and the cops felt satisfied. When the curtains drew, people stood until the sounds of a violent altercation amid screams came from the room. A headless corpse flew through the huge glass window, landing in Carla Towns's lap, pushing her against the wall, which was not the outcome she had expected. A shotgun blast was followed by more screams, then the power and lights went out. 
insidious laughter came from the room, followed by a huge boom like a demolition's headache ball smashing into a building. Flashlights scanned the room, then outside in a gaping hole piercing the rain. Everyone was apoplectic and frantic. Bolo phone calls swept the county. Nine days of unstoppable rage began immediately downtown. Mayhem ensued, destroying what was supposed to be a very normal day. Nine school buses were crushed with terrified kids still alive as Melvin exacted revenge for the pedophile bus driver who trapped the hopeless boy inside. He then strolled over to an Exxon station, flipping over a full tanker truck, and laughed as he ignited it with the driver's bick. The man died, soaked in gasoline and flames. When a lone squad car flew up to the scene, Melvin's hands locked onto a fire hydrant, tearing it from the ground and hurling it like a missile into the driver's side of the car. Two were dead now, and panicked, raged in the streets. The mayor, along with the sheriff and police chief, raced to the scene as the maniac headed toward City Hall. Bullets were ineffectual against Melvin's impervious flesh, and he now killed several cops with his bare hands. When three American jihadists, who, ironically, planned to attack on the same day in the heart of the city, launched their killing spree, exploiting the violence, Melvin bent their AK-47s, and each man died horribly. Melvin neither wanted nor needed help or competition, and one by one stomped each of the men's skulls into the asphalt, hurled another floor floors up into a plate glass window, holding the last terrorist by his legs, splitting him like a wishbone. With each kill, he felt emboldened. Then, strange hunger racked his body as if he were starving. Smoke rising from Carolina barbecue filled his nostrils. When the ravenous man smashed through the brick wall on the side of the building, Horace Cooper's face drained of blood. This was Melvin's only merciful moment. Get the hell out of here! The 72-year-old barbecue champion ran out of the hole in the wall, fumbling for his keys, and jumped into his new Ford pickup, squealing away. Melvin sat down at the table after loading it with seven slabs of ribs, two pork shoulders, six whole chickens, and a deep-fried turkey. While he feasted, the police surrounding the buildings were unsure of what to do. The mayor's plea to the governor for the National Guard's intervention was answered, but they were an hour away. Meanwhile, Melvin washed down his meal with the first beer he'd enjoyed in years. Sated, the fiend walked out into the bright sunlight, gnawing on a last shoulder bone, eager for battle. When the hail of bullets flew, he attacked. Dying screams from courageous police valiantly performing their duties left him remorseless. After he tore away a bulletproof vest from a female SWAT officer, his lust spiked just like his hunger. But before he could attack, Hellish fire from two attack helicopters pelted the area while miraculously missing the officer who crawled into an open storm drain to hide herself. Melvin ran down the street, enraged but unable to fly. 
Now a full division attacked and the city exploded into flames. All day into the summer heat and on into the night, the sky glowed red with explosions and flames. CNN, Fox, and all the other major networks were in town covering the catastrophe, and the White House was empty, with the president aboard Air Force One. Thousands fled the city north and south on I-95, and it became a ghost town. Needing more food for energy, Melvin raided a Popeye's, a Wendy's, and finally smashed into a large grocery store, eating his way down the aisles to the deli, where he smashed glass cases foraging on more Carolina barbecue. The president's liaison was on the ground, meeting with officials while the maniac was eating. One mystery remained in Melvin's mind, as he had never used the bathroom. There was none of his prior rancid flatulence that repulsed the prison guards and zero urine. What had that stranger done to him? And how long would it last? Into the night he stayed awake, as sleep too abandoned him. Five days later, the city lay in ruins. Out of ideas, with hundreds dead and millions of dollars of military hardware in ruins, the president was perplexed. America had never faced an enemy like this in its history, with no recourse in sight. It was eight and a half days later, and slowly Melvin felt his strength losing its effectiveness. The huge quantities of food now had no effect. As he staggered, his vision blurred, and his head, pounding, limped him into the woods west out of town while drones followed his movements. None of the officials understood why he ended his violence, but all were relieved. At 11.47 p.m., ahead of the ninth day, Melvin's incredible strength was zapped, and he lay on his back in the mud. Finally, his revenge was completed, just as the stranger had said, and for the first time, real fear coursed through his heart. The gentle hum of drones mixed with the troops of crickets and other singings of the night, and suddenly, all of the drones lost power and fell into the mud. The generals panicked, wondering what was coming next, and called the president back at the White House. He hadn't slept in five days. A soft blue light enveloped Melvin's limp body with the barely registering pulse. In seconds, he was no longer on the ground, but inside a room, warm, quiet, and still. A gentle hum from what sounded like engines lifting off confused the man, and he closed his eyes for a few minutes. When he awoke, the stranger stood against a dark wall of glass, silently staring at him. A healed Melvin stood naked and with some kind of harness around his chest and neck. He approached the stranger. Where am I at? Who are you? I'm the man that saved you. Don't you remember? Yep, yeah, that was nine days ago, fool. Hmm, nine days? Melvin, that was six months ago by your Earth years. Six months? Look. The stranger pressed a button, and Melvin was shocked to see he was no longer on Earth, but aboard a ship in deep space. 
He pressed his hands against the glass, utterly confused. What? What? Where the hell are you taking me? Taking you, Melvin? My experiment was a total success, and I'm taking you to war. You are now a war dog of the Vows Empire. Stunned, Melvin stared into the starry void, understanding he'd been victimized once again. This was Nine Days, written by Daryl McDonald and read by Erica Christie. You can find out more information about Daryl, Erica, and their stories on ImagineAlleyDigital.com. <laughs>